unprocessed or unexpressed grief can flip into rage and anger. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that a lot of times we're, we're the recipient of anger that is unprocessed grief and we have no way of unpacking that from our yeah. parents or from our grandparents. That's where the intergenerational part comes in. So you may unconsciously learn that anger is grief because you, you might see some connection. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kiefhofer here. Welcome to season four of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. If you're new, yes, this is a podcast all about grief, exploring the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're joining me. I'm so thrilled to share that today I'm bringing you a conversation with a researcher I've long admired. Rachel Yehuda is an endowed professor of psychiatry and neuroscience of trauma. She's also director of mental health at the James J. Peters Veterans Affairs Medical Center. She's a recognized leader in the field of traumatic stress studies, PTSD, and intergenerational trauma. In 2019, Dr. Yehuda was elected to the National Academy of Medicine for her seminal contributions to understanding the psychology and biological impact of traumatic stress. In 2020, Dr. Yehuda established and now directs the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. In this episode, we touch on her work, of course, but we also got much more personal, including exploring what she learned about grief and ritual, growing up in an observant Jewish household and community. So I want to welcome you to the podcast. Welcome you to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So the listeners will have heard in the intro all about your incredible career and probably heard me fangirl over the work that you've been doing. So I wanted to welcome you to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch podcast today. And Rachel, I'd love to start where I start with all of my guests over these past seasons, which is inviting you to recall to whatever level you want to share your earliest memory of grief or, you know, of loss in your childhood and, and how were the adults in your life modeling grief that could be explicit, you know, behaviors or things they said to you, or even just the implicit things you might've picked up about what it means to grieve and mourn. Yeah, that's a very um, penetrating question <laughs> that you've asked me. Um, I think the first time I became aware of grief is really when I realized that I didn't have a grandfather. I couldn't pinpoint exactly when that was, but that my mother had lost her father when she was a teenager. And so I grew up with two grandparents on my father's side, but only a grandmother on my mother's side. And I found that really curious about why she didn't have a father and what that means that her father had died when she was Um, when she was just a teenager. And to be very honest, the idea of not having a full set of grandparents was quite common. I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, because there were a lot of Holocaust survivors that lived in Cleveland that were in the Jewish community where I was also raised. And a lot of people didn't have grandparents. So I think it was something that I did try to think about why some people might have grandparents and other people wouldn't have grandparents and what that actually meant. So of course, you know, in Jewish life, you observe the day of death. My mother observed the day of death for her father. 
And of course, in a few days, I will observe that day of death called the Yord site for my own father who died a few days ago. So yeah, I think my first experience was with grandparents, but again, in elementary school, there was a boy that died in the class. And that was about 11. And it was after an illness and the details to an 11 year old were very, very vague. And that was a very different kind of grief because it was happening at the time. It was in the moment and the sadness around that. And yeah, just the immediacy of it all. So yes, of course, those are my childhood reflections. But it really wasn't until much later that I knew people that were died, you know, that were dying. Yeah. Um, so yeah, nothing nothing too much to report in childhood except maybe that. Yeah, I think thank you so much for sharing that. And I mean, I can imagine it as an 11-year-old trying to even understand, right? We're still just trying to grapple with kind of permanence and death. But I guess I wonder. You said that your mom always observed, and this was part of the Jewish tradition, of course, the day of the death. But one of the things I think about when I think about our grief beliefs is sort of, you know, there's sort of old models of grief that used to be sort of like your goal was to detach and move on, right? Kind of the Freudian kind of old school. And then there's the kind of understanding that we have now that we find a way to continue a relationship if it's a death loss, because of course we can experience grief not related to death. So Beyond that day of death, did your mom share stories of her father? Did people talk about your classmate after the fact? How did, what was the sort of memory carrying forward experience in your family life? And and sort of how did that show up in your family, I guess? Well, there were definitely stories about my grandfather, not too many. I mean, just enough to paint a picture. Nothing was talked about when the the 11-year-old boy from our class from our grave really died, just nothing. And I I mean, I think your question really speaks to not what you do when someone dies, but how you really view death. And different cultures view death so differently. For some people, you live and you die and there's nothing afterwards. So I think in that sense, the grief can be much more severe because it's a final loss in cultures where your current life is a transition, perhaps to an afterlife, perhaps to a reincarnation, another life, life. perhaps you view it a little differently. One of the things that really struck me uh, a while, a few years ago, was that we lost somebody at work. Mm. And the cultural conversation around going to a better place Mm. to me was so profound that there was sadness, but the sadness was really secondary to this idea that somebody had reached their end, perhaps prematurely, but what was going to seek their salvation or going to heaven or going to a better place. And, And it was a deep consolation to the family and deep consolation to other people that had loved this employee. And I was very struck by that, how sometimes when you have a deep spiritual connection to the idea that you're going to be moving on, that it's a big journey, and this is just one of the, one of the stops in the journey, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that you can really have a different kind of adjustment to the idea of grief. Yeah, I think there's grief. Yeah, there's a grief because I'm no longer going to see this person. Yeah, but that maybe there is a better fate that awaits the person who just died and left because their soul is still there and the soul is immortal, and there might be a better place. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I really appreciate the way you remind us that you know, of course, especially in the West, I think we like to, well, we are, we are a binary culture. We like things just so. And we also think that the way we see the world is the way everybody sees the world, which of course we, is not the case, but I appreciate the way you sort of helped us see that based on our different sort of 
perspectives, maybe spiritual, religious beliefs or practices, we might be, though 100% of us experience grief, that's, you know, to be alive is to love and to lose, right? That's just kind of the nature of our time here in these bodies on earth, but that the different cultures might shift people's relationship with their grief and their loss in profound ways. I think I would be remiss if I didn't also say, though, I think we have to be careful that that isn't the maybe viewpoint of some people. So to offer they're in a better place now can also be very diminishing and demeaning. I'll just say I, my husband, my listeners know by now, I'm sure, but I was 40 when my husband was finally, after a year of misdiagnosis, diagnosed with a brain tumor. And within two weeks, he was in a coma and having to take him off life support. We mm. have a, we have a seven-year-old at home and a friend of his came to the, you know, people came to say their goodbyes, such as it was. And someone said to me, I am, I don't come from a religious background or spiritual background. So, and I hadn't really thought about, and it was also new and overwhelming. And someone said to me, don't worry, Lisa, he's going to be in a better place soon. And it took everything I had to not, as you can imagine, punch him in the face, because mm-hmm. to me, the better place is alive with me and his seven-year-old daughter, right? So yeah. yeah. And I can, it's, it's the and, you know, and is sort of my favorite word. And I can appreciate that for some people, that is such a meaningful reminder. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't yeah. think that would have been a helpful thing to say to me yeah. either. Right. Um, but I was very struck by how much it was helping that family. Yeah. Very, very struck with that. And I also think that you have to be careful when you introduce these kinds of concepts from your own spiritual life into someone else's, right. because that, you know, might not, they work. not might be there <laughs> right? at that place. Yeah. I think you're from the same yeah. church or, synagogue right. or exactly. whatever. You can say something that is profoundly insensitive. Yeah. Especially when it comes to premature loss yeah. of loved one. You know, when it isn't just the, I don't want to say just, but it, it isn't a natural transition of somebody who has lived a full and meaningful life and death is part of life. Death is going to happen. Yeah. But when it's a child or when it's somebody in the prime of their lives, right. if it's due to just a, a tragedy, an illness or, or something that just shouldn't have happened, yeah, it's a harder thing to apply that. And you have to you have to let that come from the mourner. Exactly. <laughs> you can't exactly. superimpose it on the mourner. That has to be, and, and that's what I was following. I mean, I was I was just watching it and learning something. So again, I think it's hard in our culture to say the right thing in almost any domain right now, but it's always been difficult in death. And, you know, it's not scripted that well. And you could say something that is so well-intentioned, like, well, he's not suffering anymore. He's in a better place. And and that could just be so dismissive of somebody's current here and now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I often say that, of course, in my work, people come to me all the time. I did design a line of empathy cards for just such a reason because I thought I hated the ones... I got the ones in the mail that offended me, you know, sort of he's in yeah. a better place and blah, blah, blah. But what I often say to people, I'm just curious to sort of think about what you have to say about this is it's really has less to do with the words that we say to people. I think we're so, we pride ourselves on sort of our cognitive and our linguistics. And I do think words matter. Of course, I'm a narrative therapist by training. Our language matters. And I think when it comes to showing up, to be present with somebody, to be, you know, sort of be compassionate with somebody. Words are really the last thing that matters. If you show up with kind of your energetic sort of discharged, you know, kind of calm energy, your loving energy, your presence, I think is profoundly more important than any words you could say, because the truth is most of us want to show up to fix somebody's pain because we care about them and we hate to see somebody in pain, but there's no bypassing the pain of loss 
So if we can sort of set, and usually the words are around fixing because really the words around if they're in a better place or at least they're not suffering in some ways comes from a place of wanting to alleviate or fix your pain, but to show up kind of more on the energetic level to just say, I see you. Yeah. I, I you know, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm thinking as you're talking about the Jewish custom of Shiva, yeah. where basically your job is to show up at some point during the seven day of mourning, in one sense, it's to pay your respects, but it's really about how to comfort the mourners, those who are still there, who have just buried a loved one. And of course, in Judaism's inimitable way, there are are laws and customs around what you should and shouldn't do in a shiva. But one of the most profound customs is that you're not really supposed to address the mourner until they address you verbally first. Mm. When you walk into a shiva house, the way that it works is that the mourner or mourners are sitting down on a lower chair. And then there are other chairs that are there so that visitors can come and talk to the mourner. But you're not supposed to make the first move verbally. You're not supposed to say, oh, how are you? I heard it was terrible or the funeral was beautiful or any of that stuff. You're supposed to sit in your chair until the mourner recognizes you. And so a good Jewish mourner really tries to (laughs) recognize the people that have come. It could be with a nod or thank you or, or hello. But until the mourner says the first word, you're not supposed to talk. And I have been at Shiva calls where um, I had to sit quietly for maybe a good 10, 15 minutes before, you know, I was recognized. And I didn't think I wasn't doing anything to your point about holding space, but I was absolutely present. And the fact that I wasn't actually in conversation with someone was totally fine. And so I think there's something to what you say in that being present does not need to be verbal. And I think the purpose of that custom or law, I'm not sure which it is really, yeah. um, is mostly because the wrong words can do damage. So first, do no harm. If you sit in a chair and don't say a word, you didn't not do the right thing. You did not say the right thing. And sometimes just just giving someone a hug if you feel they're receptive to that or or um, a touch on the shoulder or just saying gosh I'm so sorry for your loss that's to me one a way that you can't go wrong yeah because that sort of hits all of the important areas without interjecting a lot of things that, you could get offended by oh, or that could harm. I mean, any any of the things that you say like that, they're really also, I think, a way of avoidance or minimizing pain. And for so, ourselves too, right? Yeah. And for the person who's trying to comfort you. I mean, one rendition of they've gone to a better place is that, that I truly believe that. And let's rejoice in our mutual spiritual belief that there is a better thing happening now, which was what I found powerful about it, because I didn't think people were just saying it. I really felt that this was how it was, Yeah. as opposed to this pain is so bad. Let me say something to remove the focus on how horrible the hurt is. Yeah. And that's when we start yapping <laughs> exactly, and saying the things that can be very distressing. And, you know, the uh, more Judaism, I mean, the book of Job is really about how to talk to a mourner mm. and how not to talk to a mourner. Yeah. Um, and it, it is a profound book for that reason. And at the end, God chastises Job's friends for saying, you know, Job, don't you believe in God? I mean, he, he must have taken your children for a reason. And Job is furious. He said, this is how you talk to me right now. Right. And at the end, God appears and says to the friends, yeah, you don't need to defend me. <laughs> That's not how you talk to a woman. Wow. Uh, wow. Uh, that 
I could accept the affect. I could accept Joe being outraged at the the losses that he suffers. You you don't need to, you know, fix or excuse or yeah, avoid you don't need or to excuse God and make you don't need to do that. It's more being with somebody in their suffering and letting them express. Yeah. Even blasphemous ideas like yeah. grief might result in some blasphemous ideas, but Absolutely. getting out what you think and being the recipient of someone's honest emotion at the time. And as a therapist, you know, that's not doing nothing. Sitting in a room with someone talking is not doing nothing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, exactly. it's providing an important container, which is a lot of hard work. And um, letting somebody say exactly what they need to say. And not trying to fix or correct or make or have them come from a place of sort of cognitive intellect and let them, yeah, be present in kind of the authenticity of the anger, which, by the way, is dismissed. We think of grief often as just sadness, but rage is a pretty powerful part of anger, which culturally, again, we don't really love to make space for people to express their anger, you know? Well, you know, I'll tell you something interesting. When we um, first started our Holocaust clinic, this was in the 90s, and we didn't really know what to do. This is all uncharted territory. PTSD was a new diagnosis, and we didn't have all the answers here. Um, But what we decided to do was just set up some individual and group psychotherapy programs and you know, see what happened and meet as a staff weekly and talk about every single thing that happened in every session and kind of monitor what are good things to have happened, what are maybe things that weren't so good to have happened. And I remember it. And the reason I remember this, because, you know, I'm a neuroscientist by training and I, I didn't really catch up on the clinical stuff until a little bit later in my career. So this is very early in my career. Yeah. Yeah. And we're in a room with maybe 12 very seasoned and experienced therapists from all types of therapeutic schools, ranging from psychoanalytic to behavioral to psychiatry to social work, psychology. Yeah. And we're having this discussion about when somebody starts crying, whether you hand them a tissue. So we had decided that the room always needs to have a box of tissues that are placed in the middle of the circle. And then we had these long discussions about whether the therapist should get up when somebody's crying, get up, go for the tissue box and actually give it to someone who's recounting some that something horrible. So you might think this is a really stupid conversation and really benign. <laughs> I mean, like who cares, right? But I learned something very deep from the people that said, you want to be sure to have a tissue there because you don't want somebody running their whole face off. But giving them a tissue is a different action because you'd never want a patient to feel that you're telling them to stop, to stop talking, stop crying, stop crying. Dry it up, dry Dry it up, up. cover it up. Yes. And to me, that was such a profound thing to learn. We called it the tissue issue going forward. And I love it, a catchy it, phrase. I yes, and, and it really was about what we are doing inadvertently to suppress emotion that we cannot tolerate. Yeah, yeah. So it became bigger than that. And when you are working with trauma survivors or people that have lost somebody, the, the grief can be overwhelming. Yeah. And so one of the and things dysregulating. Absolutely. And so one of the things we had to practice and learn and and kind of use the peer process to help each other through was whether something that we said was subconsciously designed to make it stop. Mm-hmm. And the other example that went in the tissue issue was this idea of, you know, here, take this medicine. <laughs> You know, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Like, you're so upset. Why don't you take something to calm down? And of course, when somebody is very upset, sometimes that is exactly what should happen. We can't stay on that high threshold of stress for too long. Right. 100%. So, So sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen. 
but it's exactly as you say it's not in the words it's in, in it's in the music it's it's how you do it yeah. and so doing it because you can't stand the grief is different than because you're feeling that they can't stand right. to be in that grief mm. state and you need to take it down a notch on their behalf yeah. and it's a very important distinction oh. friends with people i just got the goosebumps all over when you said that just that you. <laughs> That's such an important differentiation, right? I mean, I'm talking about that always. Like we have a very low part of how I think personally, part of why we have such a hard time showing up and holding space and bearing witness for others is because we haven't learned how to show up and hold space and bear witness for our own pain and to sort of be, figure out how to sort of attend to our own distress and figure out how to regulate ourselves. And so all pain feels scary and we sort of turn the lens back on us when we're supposed to be. So I love that idea of sort of checking inward to sort of think about, is my action sort of motivated by my own intolerance of their sadness or anger or rage? Or am I feeling like this is kind of beyond the point of being helpful to them and they're so distressed that we want to sort of bring them down into some some place? I mean, some other really interesting things that came out of these conversations was the fact that sometimes people who are trying to assist people who are in a grief state are actually jealous that they have not been afforded the opportunity to just let it all out there and grief. And there's something about being raised more in my generation than in perhaps today's generation, where it was really a value to not show your emotions. Yes. Absolutely. It really was this idea of being stoic. I mean, what are we all saying about the Queen of England? She just right. never let them see you, her emotions. Exactly. And so we are raised. Good kids that. were seen and not heard. I mean, sort oh, of in our generation, true. right? Absolutely. But, yeah. Yeah, but it's just this idea that if you can conquer it, if you can have this regal stance about you, yeah. But there's something really great about that. And then let's say you pull that off, but it's at a cost, right? It's totally at a cost. It's, it's going to come. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just parked in your neurobiology and your. And here's your somebody that gets to just cry with abandon. <laughs> like, why didn't I get to do that? Yeah. And so that is another really interesting thing that, you know, we processed in this is therapist supervision, just these. Yeah. You know, we call these points counter-transference, you know, yeah, just right. the, the um, your response to what is going on with the, with someone. They, ha- they have a feeling about you. You have a feeling about, about them, about what is eliciting in you. Yeah. When we come back, Rachel explores how our challenge to face our grief can show up intergenerationally. She also offers up a ritual in Judaism that invites you to set a date with memory. If you're looking for more grief support after the show today, go ahead and sign up for the Not So Regular newsletter by visiting lisakefavor.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why not so regular? Because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. I always say that whether you're doing this in the professional role or, you know, because of course people come to me a lot and say, how do I show up for my sister, my brother, my neighbor, my colleague, besides wanting a script, which unfortunately I'm like, sorry, there's no script. But the one of the things I say that we can do that we will be best as a supporter if we do our own grief work first. And that's really what you're talking about. It's like, you got to come to grips with your own stuff. Otherwise you're going to be, as you said, maybe jealous, resentful, uncomfortable. You're going to be maybe causing. You may not be aware that you're holding these things. Of course, most of us aren't because we also name grief very narrowly in this country. Our story of grief is it's death loss only. It has to be someone close to you. You know, it has to look a certain way. It has to sort of be neat and linear. And so a lot of us, I think, are carrying... Well, that's why we all cry at movies sometimes when exactly. it's a stranger and it's fiction. Yeah. And yet the tears just flow. Yeah. And what is it about that? It's because somehow it's far enough and it's close enough 
to allow us to just project something inside that has not been fully grieved or processed emotionally and kind of project it onto this thing. And often you don't realize that you have unprocessed feelings about something like grief or loss until you're in a room with someone and you're not really reacting as you're, you haven't brought your best self. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that saying that. Yeah. <laughs> you not know, your highest and best self. And not your highest and best self. And, and, and you feel it, you feel yeah. that you're not showing up properly, Yeah. but you don't really know why your intention is, is you love the person who's mourning. You, you perhaps love the person who died too. Yeah. And you're not sure what those barriers are. And the best thing to do then is to kind of stop a minute and say, hey, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. What am I connect? What, what is, what am I connecting with right now? Yeah. And also when you cry at a movie, <laughs> you know, yeah. What, what, what's making me really cry? What's what, resonating here? Here. And then you can also then get in touch with all, all the things that are suppressed on really a regular basis because, yeah. you know, it's a saying that I uh, use here a lot and everybody likes to see the ballerina sweat. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's because we're taught it's just better if we don't show our emotions. Right. You know, when I was growing up, if a child fell in the playground, you would tell that child to stop crying when my children fell in the playground, I kind of didn't do that. Somehow I felt it wasn't nice. And I said, okay, cry. You'll see in a few minutes, it won't be such a big owie. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, cry. And then check in a few minutes later. Because by then you're not crying as much anymore. And you know what? The, The initial sting is lower. And that is a better way to kind of, teach your child affect regulation. That's a better way to allow your child to understand that emotions change. You can go from something to, yeah, something will get better. And also that you're not afraid of emotion. You're not afraid of their negative emotion. They don't have to step on tiptoes because you can't handle what they're throwing your way. And that is a a great way to give a child a foundation. Well, and sort of attachment and attunement, because also we learn, I mean, speaking back to the sort of implicit things that we learn is if we learned that you're crying a month later, a year later over grandpa dying or somebody dying and the adult in the room kind of rejects you or tells you to go hide and, you know, just go away, be in your room, we're sort of learning implicitly that I'm not valued or I'm not welcome sort of in community if I'm sad or if I'm angry. So absolutely. And so I think, and then also to explain that it's normal instead of a response, Oh, you're still upset about that. That happened a long time ago, which we say, Oh, we we definitely do. Which is why we all, many of us, it's my generation, your generation. I'm hoping it's, it's different. I think walk around and carrying these grief beliefs that really are foundational to some of that, which is to kind of suck it up, you know, to be loved, to be a good person, to be a strong person is to have your emotions in private if you must have them kind of, you know, and move along. And those are our grief beliefs that sort of we can pass on. I mean, I know you study sort of intergenerational, but I do think, you know, what you described as shifting kind of the culture in your, in your family now from your family of origin, maybe, but a lot of us don't because we're not aware that we had those beliefs and that we could think a different way. Well, you know, I think um, unsuppre- un- un- unprocessed or unexpressed grief can flip into rage and anger. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that a lot of times we're, we're the recipient of anger that is unprocessed grief. And we have no way of unpacking that from our yeah. parents or from our grandparents. That's where the intergenerational part comes in. So you may unconsciously learn that anger is grief because you you might see some connection. Yeah, right. Um, And so I think that anytime that you have a very strong, call it not constructive emotion, anger can be the right emotion at the right time. Right, right. Um, But anger at the wrong time probably won't. Mm -hmm. Even anger at the right time has to happen in the right way. But 
But when it's happening at the time, it's connected to the thing that we are justifiably angry at. But when we sort of suppress it and then it comes out sideways, yeah, right, that's where the friend. problem is. I mean, my dad did not process a lot, has not processed a lot of his. And I think anger is the way his grief came out, which made me somebody who does everything to avoid anger. You know, like we we, and we also have these hurt. ways of coping and, and hurt. You know, we have these ways of hurt. adapting. Yeah. Absolutely. That we can only do something about if we can sort of make it visible and understand it. Yeah. You know, I like the idea of being able to find a way to keep somebody with you. Maybe not at all times, but at frequent times. You can't do it at all times. That's too overwhelming. I like this idea in Judaism of the York site. For some people, once a year is not going to be enough. Yeah. Um, I like, I mean, I, I lost a very good friend this year, a very good friend and mentor. And he died a slow and painful death from cancer. It wasn't a surprise eventually. As a matter of fact, I couldn't believe how long he hung on in pain, in a lot of pain and, and, and kind of endured it with great dignity. But I find myself very often thinking of him yeah. and stopping, just stopping. Yeah. So. Wow. What a, what a ra- radical idea to pause. <laughs> like I think stop. the pause is the most radical idea in the 21st century, right? That we have. And also, I would call him from time to time when I needed to call him for whatever thing that happened. And sometimes I just give my phone, his number's still in there. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a good idea. I kept my father's voicemails. Oh yeah. On my phone for oh gosh, maybe four years, five years yeah. after he died. His last uh, voicemail to me was wishing me a Shabbat Shalom, a a, um, a pleasant Shabbat. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Such a beautiful message. Well, I think what you were saying there too, though, I don't know that there are shoulds or shouldn'ts around kind of like how long, how often do we keep memories? Like, I think even that is some of the some of the myths that I'm trying to break with the work that I'm doing. It's like, we have to all check in with our own meter a little bit around, is it becoming, I think the ways in which we might revisit or carry objects or memories is if it's keeping us from being present and building, you know, a life here on earth kind of thing, right? It's like if we're bypassing kind of being present to our current world by being so wrapped up in the memory keeping or then that's maybe where that might be a sign for us that well, this this might be getting in the way. Putting aside time to do it so that you have a date with it is better than reaching for it because if you're reaching for it, maybe you are preventing something in the here yeah. and now. I mean, eventually I stopped listening to the message. Yeah. I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. And you know, being in the here and now is very, very important. But knowing even in the here and now that you have a date with memory can be important because it is possible to sabotage your your future with the past. And, you know, people who work with trauma survivors see that all the time, that that they're they're really just mortgaging away their future because they're spending so much capital on the past. And a lot of it is because they don't want the loved one to be forgotten. They don't yeah. want the trauma to be forgotten because even though it's horrible, it's defining. Yeah. And so people, um, especially I've seen this in combat veterans, that having a good day and not thinking about the day you lost somebody really important to you in battle, it could also feel like a betrayal. The guilt and yeah. And there could be a lot of guilt with moving on. Yeah. Because the person that died didn't get to move on. And if you move on, does that mean that their legacy isn't with you? So finding ways to kind of schedule when you think of someone and a ritual to do to keep them alive or having projects sponsored in their name and memory yeah. uh, that they would have particularly loved or would have gotten behind in their life or or doing something in the here and now and for the future that is really about caring forward someone's legacy can be very, very powerful. In the academic world, we um, name fellowships after people right, <laughs> or, or, or something like that. And 
it's a way to really carry carry them with us. And so these, these are constructive ways that we Which I think are all useful. Them. Maybe not, you know, in the early days of somebody's grief, this is not a realistic way to think about it. But yes, as we move forward, such a constructive days, way. Avoidance. In the early days, you could be trying to prematurely close on something because the um, distress can't be tolerated right. and you don't have faith that you will be, you will go on the other side of it. Right. Which is why a lot of us have unprocessed grief because we've just shut yeah, it down in the, in the yeah, beginning. We deal with it. You know, I mean, somebody will have, I, I, I see this a lot in, in the field of trauma. Um, somebody will have an excruciatingly horrific thing happen to them that day. And they'll say, they'll come in the next day and they'll say, can I get a prescription for sleeping pills? And so you ask why? Well, this terrible thing happened to me yesterday. Okay, well, you're not sleeping. Is maybe your body trying to stay on alert or process something? Or if it was like that you were a victim of a crime or 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 something like that, a mugging or interpersonal violence, your body is still on alarm. Why would you want to de-alarm your body? Why not? Why not have your life convince your body that things are okay now, but understand that this might take a little bit of time. We're, yeah. we, we don't like to stay with negative affect when it's appropriate. Right. That's our body's, that's our body doing its job, right? That's a, yeah. the beautiful design of us humans is that our body, the stress response does enact and keeps us alert to keep us safe. But so we don't instead, like to stay there. Yeah, yeah. Instead of controlling your bodily responses and your emotional responses, why not say, "Wonder, wonder what I'm meant to learn here. Wonder, yeah. what, wonder why am I? Why are? Why is water coming in my eyes? Right. <laughs> What's what is going on for me that I need to stop and and, and focus on a little bit and not yeah. the channel on? Yeah. With it. Yeah, and that's hard. And I'm just taking a moment to think about if you're a listener and you're very new in your grief, this is not to say that your impulse to want to reduce that pain or to sleep, which by the way, sleep is important because if you go too long without sleep, then that, well, that's the argument that's all, we'll get the sleep. I know, I agree. <laughs> and it's sort of just to sort of make sure I'm making visible that the impulse to want to shut it down is also is, is normal. Of course, we don't want to be in those states of distress. And how can we find to be a way to be in better relationship with our body's natural ways of, of processing these harms? Right, right. It, it is an and because I'm not in any way suggesting that these medicines that can help you sleep or calm you down when you are very much in a state. Past that window of tolerance, kind of. Yeah. Past that window of tolerance, you do have to be brought into that window of tolerance. Yeah. And so, but, but it's a good time to see what your window is. Yeah without assuming that you can't tolerate something and you can't come out the other side. So I think, and obviously it depends on the situation. A lot of times grief is very, very sudden and very, very shocking and very, very, very tragic. Yeah. Very, very tragic. There are, you know, terrible stories. Yeah. yeah. To people and their lives change within seconds. Exactly. Um, just seconds. And so if it's overwhelming, you cannot expect equanimity. No. You cannot expect full cognitive functioning Absolutely and to be. Not. Yeah. Yeah. When we come back, Rachel shares something really beautiful and unique that she's learned after studying trauma survivors over the course of her whole career. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. If you want to hear more incredible conversations like the one I'm having with Rachel today, make sure you're subscribed to the show. Head over to Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform and hit subscribe. And if you love the show, I have a big favor to ask you. Take a few more moments, leave a rating and write a review. I've heard you say this before, and I've been thinking about this, of course, maybe to touch on sort of grief, comma, stress, comma, PTSD. But I heard you say once before sort of this notion when you've been working with trauma patients around someone saying they're forever changed. 
And that's what you're learning in, in your studies, of course, is that there's actually things that are changing sort of at the physiological level. But in grief and loss, of course, we say that all the time, right? Whether it's, the, you know, I have friends and have interviewed guests who've lost young children, right? Uh, you know, myself, my loss of my husband. I'm also a trauma survivor of interpersonal violence when I was young. And my life is forever changed. I really do believe that I didn't re recognize the sort of the internal workings of how, but it's for me comes from the place, my sort of view of grief. I developed a, a metaphor years and years ago, shows my narrative therapy interests and in that grief is like our lives are built by the stories we tell of all of our experiences. And when we face a profound loss, a death loss, a catastrophic injury, a trauma, it's akin to the manuscript of our lives being torn to shreds and then handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live into our lives. And part of what we're doing in grief is sort of taking the pieces of our old story and weaving it new. So there are pieces of us that carry forward, of course, in the wake of loss, but we are forever changed. Do you think that forever changed language is appropriate when we talk about grief? How do you see that? If you don't judge forever changed in the negative, it's right. Appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, look what you've done. You've created a podcast where you're reaching thousands or millions of people yeah. that are struggling with grief. This would not have happened without no. your own grief. Yes. So um, what you've done is you have found some meaning, some purpose. Yeah. You know, maybe if we asked you, you'd rather not have the podcast and, and not have the grief. That might be true. But you don't you don't actually get to make that choice. And so what do you do to move on? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is you're talking about this meaning making kind of part of our work. The yes. hardest thing for people to kind of sit down with it and accept it. And then say, now, what is the very best, most positive thing I can do with this hand that I've been dealt? Yeah. And this is extraordinary to be able to then use it towards alleviating someone else's pain. And you find among trauma survivors and, and survivors of grief, extraordinary capacities yeah. for helping others. The person that lost someone is the person you want in the room when you lose someone. Yeah. They are the person that knows how you feel. And even if they don't discuss their own thing at the time, they're carrying it, they know. So it's this idea that our tragedies will help in some way, in some future, in, in some way to alleviate the sum total of suffering. And then we can develop a perspective you know, much later about what it meant to lose, what it yeah. meant to have someone's life be cut short, and and what it just means in general that that our that, that our lives are transient. That, yeah. that we're here one day and we're not here another day, and what what that actually means about what our purpose is and, and how we have to conduct ourselves with other people each and every day. So I think that the, the it's not turning grief into something positive exactly. Grief right. Is, this isn't the toxic positivity kind it's not of toxic yeah. positivity. It's I don't know, is it making lemonade? I don't know what it is, but it's it's sort of grappling with the reality that our lives have tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. And and and, and in that. So and can we allow that to help us see the joy or the beauty or the find the meaning. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, without adversity, how, how can we possibly appreciate the good? I mean, these are also statements that you might want to smack people for saying, right. Do not say this early on. Yeah. Yeah. Do not say this like at someone's funeral yeah. or at their shiva or at their like You're going to be stronger like now. That. Yeah. They and I would, say, I would say that like, just having gone through a traumatic yeah. event or gone through a profound loss <laughs> doesn't make you somebody who necessarily lives with purpose or meaning. You have to no, do the work, right? Like you have to be. You but have you to could be act after somebody does that work. Yes. You could say, hey, look at you. Yeah. Who would have thought, you know, when I saw you a day later after, yeah. after you know, the yes. funeral, who would have thought that this would be you? Hey, I take a lot of pleasure in watching how you have managed to deal with your Transform. adversity. Yeah. I 
I am inspired by you. That's a great thing to be able to say to someone that really has tried. I want to be able to do this in my life. When, When something horrible happens to me, I want to be able to turn it around. Yes. And, and transform, you know, we haven't used the, the R word yet, resilience. Resilience, yeah, please, please. It's such a, it's such a crazy word. <laughs> Post-traumatic growth and, and resilience has a... That's rated. a word that, is, that sometimes it's, I get irritated when people... Yes. Do, but it's another, but it's also really a good... Because we've overused it and we've tried to make it like, let's hurry up and be resilient and get over that messy, ugly healing part that we have to do. We just want to get to the resilience and celebrate it. Yeah. You know, I've spoken to a lot of Holocaust survivors and they they don't want, they don't want to hear that they're resilient. They, they just kind of took it one day at a time and put one foot in front of the other and best they could. And they had no intention in the beginning of doing more than just surviving and seeing what was going to happen. In retrospect, you can reflect on your life and say, hey, considering what happened to me, wow. A lot of of people in their older age as Holocaust survivors really took enormous pride and comfort in the families they created, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, the fact that despite life went on beginning, that they were able to sort of reach to the other side, not without not without losing sight of who they lost. Yeah. Not by leaving grief behind, but by, by kind of actually bringing it in, actually, yeah. actually making a spot for it at the table, but not not allowing it. It's to, not the whole table. Overwhelming yeah. table. Yeah. Yeah. I have a colleague who once said we have to sort of metabolize it. So that's a good word. Metabolize yeah. it. Um, make room for it. Yeah. Um, not deny it though. That's the no, point. For point sure. Is, the point is don't deny it and don't give it more than it deserves. Yeah. And that's so, a balance that's going to shit. Like what that looks like as your griever is going to change over the course of your life. And of course, new losses will always have us revisiting old, like our relationship with loss over time. So just to those of you who are listening, you know, right now it might be your whole story or covering the whole table. And then there are other types in your life where it's a part of this bigger story or it's, you know, the appetizer at the corner of the table. Right. But that that might change as we go through different losses. There could be such poignant moments. Um, A few days ago was a season of York sites in my family, but my, my very beloved grandmother's York site. And on that day, my niece had a baby. (laughs) And I was speaking to my mother that day. She says, I would never impose this, but wouldn't it be something if, you know, this new baby had my mother's name? Because it just feels so fortuitous to be born on this date, on the same day of the North Site. And sure enough, my niece actually gave that as one of the names. And I, my heart just felt so warm about that as such a beautiful tribute to the cycle of life. Yeah. And such beautiful acceptance of, of the needs of so many people to recognize and carry forward. And what was so extraordinary about it is that my niece didn't know my grandmother. Yeah. You know, she didn't know what an extraordinary person that she's naming her daughter after. My daughter is also named after this grandmother, by the way. <laughs> but, um, carrying yeah, on a legacy for real. Carrying on a legacy. Yeah. But, but to me, there's such a way to, to convert these moments into such meaningful histories just you can weaving these these incredible cultural tapestries where we're not forgetting the past we're not completely starting it from scratch we're carrying it forward but in a way where it's joyous where where you know some new young creature carries the name and the memory of someone that lived in the past that is it's not even a significant person because they never knew them, but interim generations did. So it's just a way, you know, you have a young son. I don't know if somebody will or won't give a name of your deceased husband. I hope yeah. so. But yeah. it'll be a moment for you if that does happen. Yeah. yeah and exactly. I think I think that even if that doesn't happen, something else might happen where you'll see a way for things to live on, for for some legacy 
that was his unique legacy to really be present in the here and now. And at that moment, the grief turns into something else. Yeah. It turns into yeah. something very beautiful, just like, you know, the decay of a dead body turns into something else. Life. I it mean, turns into life. It turns yeah. into a plant. It yeah. turns into something yeah. living. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that really is it's 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 very hard to say that again timing is everything you have to say that well well after yeah. that i mean it would took me years to sort of years really later. be in that place of thinking like to be to love and be loved by eric was one of the most profound experiences of my life and that i get to carry him with me in everything that i do not in this way that i'm you know ruminating and thinking about him but like that, but that shift, it took, you know, every time I thought about it pre that it was tears and longing and yearning and homesickness and all the things that are very appropriate in early grief. And now there's this sense of sort of, you know, like it brought a smile to my face. And right. I, what, ha- I had that. I had yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, tell me about that. Yeah. I had that kind of moment. Where, no, no, no. That, no, that I had that in my had life. That. Yes. And I think as, as we, yeah. As we, as it turns into something else, you reflect back and you say, "I got to have that." Yeah. Um, I might even have it again, but yeah. it doesn't even matter. I, I, I was able to, have to reach yeah. a pinnacle of joy, and I, yeah. I, and all the good things that you have from it. But it, I think, the mistake we make in our culture is thinking that um, it takes shorter than it does. Yes. Go through this process. And that's the that's the one mistake. And that causes us unnecessary suffering because we judge other people. We judge ourselves. We also, I mean, we haven't got into the whole field, but we also pathologize people. You we call it un- unresolved grief. Grief. Like, and it's like, oh, no. you tell me. Exactly. <laughs> the fact and, you're too long. <laughs> and also, I will say, I think the other thing, because again, we love everything with a to-do list and a checklist and linear and get done yeah. in this culture is even though I've come to that place. And, you know, mentioning his name brings a smile to my face and thinking about having loved and been loved by him brings a smile to my face. It doesn't mean I don't have days where I'm deeply, profoundly sad, miss his company. I still turn to him sometimes when something good or hard happens. Like I have an instinct to turn to him. It was 11 years this summer, you know, since he passed. So I think that's the other thing that we have to be careful is that we, I'm sure you see this in the work treating people with, the MDR, PTSD. I know you're now working around psychedelic psychotherapy for PTSD, but that we don't just get to a place and then we're just at a place that we can oscillate and to sort of normalize, right? That it's not this linear. I mean, we generally speaking, get less painful over time, but it's not necessarily one step forward, no steps back. Does that resonate with what you're seeing in your? Oh yeah, absolutely. Work? And and particularly in, with the psychedelics, I think you, you reach a different understanding of what it means to lose someone. Yeah. And it doesn't just feel like a loss. It it feel it it opens up the possibilities of some uh, something more profound and kind of of the earth of the world of your experience. It's hard to describe it, but a lot of people have been able to to process extreme grief by being in an altered state. Yeah. And I I hope that that is going to be an option. They've done studies of people that are terminally ill to use psychedelics like um, psilocybin to confront their deaths. And apparently the greatly reduces end-of-life anxiety and one of the things that people say about it is that I just came to terms with life as being death as being part of life Life. in a very real and meaningful way not just the words of it but right but But sort of at that sort of level that, that that death is a continuation of a process and not an ending yeah only but again this may not jive with someone's spiritual beliefs although most of the people that have this are not some of the people that have this are not necessarily speaking from a religious place but even just the dust to dust part you know just the part of the souls in these bodies Uh, that yeah come into the world and leave the Uh, world yeah 
but you know it's important to think about death it's important to to acknowledge its possibility and its presence yeah and not in a morbid daily way so that nothing else can happen yeah but i think what what sustains people's grief is is this idea that everyone moves on so fast that they feel they have to slow that down it's yeah. too like, yeah. Where are you going? Where I remember thinking, like, how are planes flying? How are people driving cars? Like, why is the world so somehow by grief? You're you're doing something important for the deceased. Yeah. And and to give yourself a chance to catch up with this new reality that I mean, we're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible, really, you know, when we face a profound loss. I think so, but there's also a fear of moving too far away from the yeah. person. Yeah. Like you like what would that mean if I don't think about you all the time? Yeah. And would that be a betrayal? And and then of course what would I think about? You know, what are the new things that what am I putting in its place? Yeah. I remember feeling profound guilt after the first time I laughed. I remember laughing out loud one time and then I kind of had this like you know, because it, I had that sort of inner dialogue, like, what does that mean? And is that disrespectful? And is it too soon? And, you know, and I think that's why I like try to have these conversations and make them more visible to say like, that's going to happen. And that's okay. And that it doesn't mean you didn't love. We're in a non-binary world now. Right. So you can have, you can have, and right. And you can have both and you can, you can laugh at the things that require laughter and be sad at the things that require sadness and you don't have to choose and one emotion's not a betrayal of the other yeah absolutely it's very fresh but i just got this tattoo you may have seen it i did did notice it and so this black this is this this is i mean i've had the sustained meditation on how do we break down this binary of acknowledging our losses while being living into our lives sort of at the same time. So the black band, of course, is a band of sort of memorializing, but it doesn't quite close and it opens into an and, an ampersand. Mm. And then the flowers grow, some of which are not filled in yet. It's probably hard to see, I don't know, but, and some aren't. And that was really my way of saying sort of like, we can do this thing of honoring our losses and live into, and I have a way of appreciating and feeling awe and wonder about the world that I really didn't experience you know, probably in the way that I do now. And the fact that there's all this unknown life that's going to happen too. So I do think to your point, how we can break down those boxes of having to be in one emotion or another, being in one state or one view or another. I think, look, grief is hard enough. It's hard. There's no like dance around like grief is hard. Loss is hard. And I think we suffer unnecessarily because we have these kind of notions that I have to only be sad or I have to hurry up and move on because it's making other people uncomfortable or, and that we can be in the both. And even though that we find that that can be distressing, the being in the both and sometimes, but, but incredibly valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, you know, at some point it becomes too much. Yeah. And at that point, somebody might say something to you or you might feel something I think there's information, I guess, is what I would say in the both and is when we're allow ourselves to kind of be in the both and that's where there's information about what our values are, what we might do next, how we might, right. choices we might I make. I think to, what you want to be looking for is that it isn't changing or it's not transforming. Yeah. It's not the same quality of grief as right. earlier on. That, exactly. that it, it keeps morphing into something else. Absolutely. And Absolutely. then, you know then you might just be one of the, those people that takes a longer time to process yeah. the grief yeah. or or something's holding you back from the next chapter yeah. that you just, you just don't really want to do it. Yeah, so, yeah. There's just information also, there. Yeah. It's useful to examine, like, what is it that I'm, what would I be doing yeah. if I weren't grieving? Yeah. And how scary is that for me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm recognizing that I've taken up so much of your morning and I know you're doing such profound work and we didn't even get to 
talk about the work you're doing around psychedelic psychotherapy today and your research on stress and trauma, but I'm going to drop in the show notes links for folks to listen and learn about the work that you do. And I hope we're able to stay in contact, but I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation on grief as a sneaky bitch. It's really been, it's really been such a profound pleasure. Well, thank you very much. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I want to give a shout out to Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and to the team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.